Hey, Tom, and we're starting? Yeah. That's it? It's official? Yeah. Oh, okay. Now you have to say, hey, Colin. Hey, Colin. I think I said that once. You, you interrupted yourself. I needed the full gratification of mm. hearing my name. I had forgotten it for a second, but you reminded me, so that's good. How's it going? It's going okay. How are you doing? Oh, I can't complain. I doubt that. Wow. I seriously doubt that. I am good at complaining. Um, so another week's gone by. It's August. We're gearing up for IBC. I mean, we're not, but the world is. Uh, in a couple weeks, we'll start seeing more IBC stuff. Um, it's always interesting as we get to this time of year, you can sort of start to tell which companies are doing well and which ones aren't if the companies are putting out press releases saying they're <laughs> excited to show the thing they premiered at NAB versus the people who have new things to show. I mean, it seems like a lot of people pre-announce at NAB and then re-announce at IBC. Yeah. But the companies that are really, like, crushing it have all new stuff for both shows. And I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with that word. <laughs> you know, it's when they're totally uh, executing their strategies with the... I wish I could do uh, BC speak. I'm not very good at it. Valley yeah. speak. Yeah, that's too bad. <laughs> that would make our relationship so much more enjoyable. Well, given that you live in San Francisco, you you often don't understand what I'm talking about because I don't talk about opening the kimono or getting off the island or sort of net net win win. Uh, yeah, that's good. Slicing the there's something about slicing the something. I think you're thinking of uh, fruit ninja. I think that thing. I think you're thinking of cut the rope. No, I don't think I am. See how I finished that? That was good. It's more fun when we keep going. No, it's really not. It's more fun when Merlin keeps going. No, it's really not. Um, so we should do a podcast this week. You want to do one? Yeah, it was, uh, you want to talk about compression? That was sort of, for me, in the last, I guess it's been about uh, 10 days since we recorded last, um, the most interesting bit. Uh, we've sort of alluded in the past, but... The MPEG group, as in the Motion Picture Experts group, group, group. Uh, had a meeting where they talked about H.265. The um, It's actually not called H.265. It's called High Efficiency Video Coding. But um, H.265 gets bandied about the future successor to H.264, which we will start seeing next year already. Right. So they've had a lot of meetings about this, but they finally released... Right. A draft proposal. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it will actually be called H.265 once it's standardized, right? Will it? I, I can't figure all that out because there's these different standards groups involved. And it's, yeah. you know, just like H.264 is also called JVT something, whatever. Yeah. And, uh, so I don't, I mean, I'm sure I mean, I think regardless, JV- it'll yeah. be H.265. No, it's one better. It's actually... No, it's just one better. Okay. It is pretty cool, though. I mean, um, I'll link to, in the show notes, both the sort of press release that came out of the meeting, but also um, the Wikipedia article actually has a pretty nice rundown of the new feature set of the codec and sort of what differentiates it from H.264. Um, The way these work is that, you know, 
everyone who's involved gets to sort of throw in their favorite bit of compression technology and then the group gets together and sort of tries to rationalize what makes sense and what doesn't. And because a code well, like this is sort of a glomming together of a lot of different technologies. Yeah. They used to try to rationalize it a little bit more than they do nowadays, it seems. Yeah. I mean, H.264 is too large of a codec, and it seems like H HEVC is even worse. Yeah. Um, they didn't get rid of anything, did they? Um, not per se. I mean, they've, they've sort of shifted the different ways they support progressive versus interlaced. Um, but they, did they officially rip out any of the old ways? I don't think they did. I don't did. think so, no. So there's just, like, more crap piled on top. Yeah, and I mean, a, a big chunks of it, w- what's been defined at this point is just main profile, but just like H.264, there will be a lot of different profiles. Um, and those Which is an attempt to make a fully functioning codec. Right. Yeah, because what happens is they throw in all these things that you can do if you want to encode the video. And then the issue becomes that any video with this file type or 4CC or whatever, people just sort of expect to be able to play back. And if encoders have their choice of 2,000 things they can do to gain a couple extra bits, then you either need to have someone willing to go through and implement the entire matrix of features as a decoder because as an encoder you just have to do whatever you want like as long as the file that you write out only uses things on this menu you're fine but the decoder has you know users have a reasonable expectation that hevc files will play back with an hevc codec and so you have to support the you know the Venn diagram, the entire feature set, in order to claim that you're the decoder. And so what they do then is they create a bunch of stripped down versions, which they can say they support because they don't. No one ever gets around to supporting all of this. And I mean, any, anyone who's dealt with H two sixty five, especially a few years ago. Um, probably ran across this when the first hardware decoders started hitting the market because, for example, the iPod line, the iPad video, you mean first came out. H264. H264. Um, the iPod line only supported the base profile of H264, which in, in many ways is very similar to the old MPEG-4 standard. It's, uh, you know, no B-frames, no uh, CABAC entropy coding. A bunch of the things that made H.264 really cool weren't supported, and so you had to generate these files that didn't look that great and didn't give you all the great savings, but because the iPods had very sort of low-power, low-sophistication video decoders, that was all they could handle. Um, And it only really started to get better, I think, with the iPhone 3GS when they finally added in main profile and and in general made their Apple's decoders less flexible or more flexible. Um, Android's had similar similar progression. Yeah, I mean, so I just wonder, I mean, hopefully they'll make something. All these standards groups are so afraid to remove stuff. And I get why, but I wish they didn't um well but i mean there's some i i can see your your point but i also think that you know because 
most of the people implementing decoders are going to be implementing based on either an official reference decoder or stealing an open source decoder, which will be a, you know, from the X264 project. They've already started implementing it. Right. You so H2, yeah. So the X264 people are a bunch of Europeans predominantly who are free from patent issues. And so implement, they've got a really good H264 encoder and decoder. And, uh, that's what's used in FFmpeg and most open source software and a lot of closed source software on the market. Um, and so, yeah, they, they're going to make a good version. And I guess, you know, as long as we assume that everyone is going to sort of standardize on these sets, but right. Well, I mean, what, but I mean, you look at camcorder manufacturers, people who are, you know, constantly implementing new ones on silicone, you know, look at all of the issues ClipRap has run into over the years with H.264. Like, people just sort of feel, you know, engineers want to be engineers, and they, you know, they're rewarded for making the video look a little bit nicer at the same bit rate or making the bit rate a little bit lower so you can record longer. And so they go in and they, like, implement another page of the spec, and all of a sudden you know, no editing platform can play back these damn files anymore. Sure. And it would be nice if, you know, the whole point of putting this whole thing in one giant spiral-bound notebook is that we all agree that it's what we have to do, but that's not how it ever works out anymore. Um, a few things just to, to call out on the codec, because you can, you can go through all the changes. Um, the things I found particularly interesting are across the board in a variety of parts of the pipeline, it's just a more flexible option uh, or flexible codecs. So um, variable size macro blocks that are not necessarily square is my understanding. So they can better fit different regions of video um, and can, um, can be substantially larger. I think they're bigger, but they can be subdivided. Well, there they've got a couple different types of terminology because you can have... They, they don't actually call them macro blocks at all anymore. They have coding tree blocks and then subunits within those. Right. Um, and and I, I guess I'm not 100% clear on whether they have to be square or not because I've seen it referred to a couple different ways. I mean, the actual, the, the transforms, the DCTs are still blocks. Sure. Square. Um, they're not actually using DCT anymore. Um, they can. They can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, they will for the next year or two until someone gets around to writing a fast implementation of one of the other ones. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's lots of cool stuff here. It seems like, I mean, from my reading, so one of the things we can't link to is a SIMPTI paper on the same issue because that's behind one of those paywalls. Um, but I, you know, we've both taken a look at that. And one of the things that from my reading of some of this is that most of what they've done is just upped the amount of work. So the way that most of these codecs, you know, any of these intra inner frame codecs get a lot of their, you know, there's two big things they do. 
to get most of their wins. One is motion estimation prediction, and the other one is this you know DCT or some sort of transform and quantization. Then, yeah. And so the two big things that they've done, you know, and both of those are really the two that and like the filtering that has to happen afterwards to make it look good, are the big areas of time. That's where all of your your time is spent in the codec. And what most of what they've done with the codec is just sort of made the numbers bigger in the spec. So it used to be, you know, um, I think MPEG or uh, H.264 is only 8x8 and 4x4 for most of these blocking. You know, so the way that all these algorithms work is they take a block of pixels, a square block of pixels, and either look for it in other frames or convert it into a format that can be compressed. But everything is done in these macro blocks, which is why when video falls apart, it always falls apart in squares. It never, you know, does anything else. It always gets blocky. It's because everything is compressed in these blocks. And, you know, it seems like most of what they've done is they've just given people the flexibility to make the blocks bigger. Um, that seems like where almost all of the wins are going to come from with this new codec. Um, and, you know, it's just because, you know, hardware has finally caught up with the last codec. Mm-hmm. And so now they can push the go post out farther. Um, a few other things that I thought were interesting. Uh, one, I mean, there is a recognition in the codec of a couple changes in the way we do video in general. One is that it definitely has a more... Um, a defined acknowledgement of intraframe that H.264, you know, for the beginning of its life, we always thought of as, as an interframe codec. And then um, with things like AVC intra and other uses of the codec, people started taking advantage of the fact that it really has good sort of uh, spatial compression, even if it, even if you're not using temporal compression. Um, and H.265 acknowledges that and takes it to some, you know, the next step, uh, which I think is pretty cool. Um, they have the ability, and I think this, this is neat. Um, they have some recognitions of, and and again, this is neat, but also more evidence of the complexity of it is that they have some special modes for dealing with, uh, screencast content, for example, or any content really with a lot of, uh, very sharp, high contrast lines. So, you know, vertical edges on windows or, or edges on windows in general, uh, where you can basically turn off um, transfer, you know, DCTs and then quantization on the Luma component of the signal so that you don't end up with issues at edges like that uh, that really only occur in computer-generated content because it's pretty rare in the real world to have one-pixel boundaries. Um, and the other thing, I think, just in terms of recognizing you know, where we are now versus where we are when H.264 was standardized is that the codec from end-to-end is really designed for multiprocessing, both on the encode and the decode side. There's a lot of different options for multi-threaded decoding. And that starts to matter both on the desktop, where you know it's important, especially as you start to do 4K and things like that, but also on mobile devices, um, now that we're seeing increasingly multi-threaded mobile devices. Um, well, and... Any of these multi-thread things open the door to using specialized hardware because the way you make specialized hardware faster is to make a bunch of simple blocks of 
silicone knot to make one really complex thing. Right. Otherwise, you just end up making a... Well, because then the only way you can speed it up... Well, no, you can do something like an FPGA where you get, you know, very specific signal path that runs serially, but the only way you get any speed increase out of that is to throw a bunch of voltage at it and up your clock rate. Right. Which just doesn't work for... Or exactly. For desktops or for mobile anymore. Right. So anyways, I mean, it's, you know, there's... Insofar as it is across the board better than H.264, there's, you can't really speak ill It can't it. be worse because H.264 is hidden in there. Right. <laughs> um, you know, it'll be a nice improvement. And, and obvi- I guess we didn't even say off the bat, the goal for the codec and in their preliminary testing they're getting close is a 50% bitrate savings. So at a certain... At the same quality. At, a, at an arbitrary, yes, yeah, same quality. Um, different points along the curve, they are targeting 50% bitrate improvements, and in their very early implementations, they're already getting like high 30s. So, yeah, no, it seems really impressive. And you know, you you consider that they're comparing best of breed H.264 codecs against you know somebody slapping together a bunch of research papers, right? It's you know, probably something right now, sitting, in, <laughs> something sitting in MATLAB or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting, and and I imagine we'll start to see it pretty quickly, um, at least on the fringes. And it'll be. I, I kind of wish. Um, so how do you think this is going to roll out? I mean, it's not going to be like. I mean, remember how long it took for Max to support H two six four. Well, you know, a big part of ship codex a big years. part of that was the the patenting issue, patent licensing issue, which I think is essentially resolved between Apple and MPEG LA as far as how they work those terms out. I mean, they because they showed it like a full year before they shipped it, um, saying you know it's done, but we can't ship it yet because this that was their first sort of step into the waters of having to license the codex before they ship them and deal with the fact that at the time H two sixty four had the per you know per encode costs and all those other oh, yeah. things. Um, so I, th- I think that it'll be quicker than that. I th- you know, I imagine what will happen is that it will be a fairly subtle rollout initially that the people who build the chips will start to roll in support for some of these early profiles, you know, dedicated decoders. Um, and, you know, companies like Apple will start pushing that pretty quickly, but may not switch over to it immediately. Um, right you know, in, in the interest of getting stuff out into the field, but, you know, a 50% savings, especially on, uh, mobile networks is a pretty huge deal. So I imagine implementation is actually going to be pretty quick. Yeah. And I mean, Apple has the advantage that they can, they can create an encoder and slap it into iTunes and, you know, there's, there's a pipeline there where you've got, a single piece of hardware that you're encoding the video for and you know what it is before you encode it. You know, but all the stuff that iTunes is doing with their like convert on the fly for my device. Mm-hmm. It seems like that can get switched over pretty easily. Yeah. Because yeah. there's no known support issues. But I mean, are we going to see is everybody's iPhone going to start working a little bit 
have a little less battery life in the interim when we're going back to doing all this on software for a couple of years? Well, it'll be interesting to see. I don't really know enough about how hardware decoders are implemented in silicon, um, whether they can continue to leverage chunks of that hardware. It seems like you probably could. Um, I think I, mean, I think it depends on the... I mean, there's two... From my understanding, there are two different models. There are custom hardware components that can be plumbed into the pipeline, mm-hmm. um, like Intel's... Um, the, I think it's on the Sandy Bridge. Yeah, Sandy Bridge and Ivy Bridge. I forget what it's called. Yeah, but they have... Basically, they're little compute units that can do very specific parts of the, you know, basically the more processor-intensive parts of H.264. But it doesn't actually, you don't hand the bitstream over to it. Right. It's like an intrinsic that you can call on a block of memory, and instead of it getting run, you know. Um, And so those conceivably could start to support H.264, you know, HEVC, yeah, but a lot of the, especially the stuff on the, um, you know, the dedicated silicon on chip decoders, mm-hmm. they actually take like an MPEG transport stream mm. and return frames. Um, and so, yeah, they're going to have to be swapped out, or you know, the whole phone's going to be swapped out for a new one in order to get that. Um, but it'll be interesting. I don't know what, you know, I guess you go back to playing the fallback path in flash for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it'll be interesting to see how it's implemented. This will be the first big codec shift in, in quite a while. And the first one with all these hardware decoders in the field. And the first one after we've given up on software fallbacks for these things in a lot of places. I mean, you know, any device that supports H.265 will presumably have support for H.264 as well. And so the device can be smart about, you know, for example, if you're making a FaceTime call, that can be negotiated if you both have iPhone 6s. Uh, right, right. Spin up H.265, otherwise fall back. And it's the same with requesting content from iTunes or YouTube or, or what have you. Um, you know, I imagine it won't be a huge issue because I think most users don't move files around. Yeah, I mean, the majority of video is not... It's not user-to-user files. It's going through an intermediary like YouTube or Vimeo right. or something. Or, um, You know, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see. Let me get back to our list here. Uh, Sibelius uses Revolt. I'll just throw this in the notes, but... Uh, Sibelius is sheet music software owned by Avid. Avid is basically spinning it down or spinning it off or spinning it off to their Ukrainian development department, and the Sibelius users are upset. Um, It was just an interesting little microcosm of the turmoil that is Avid right now. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I don't don't know. I don't know anything about it. It seems like... Yeah, Avid, I mean, it's probably a good thing that Avid is so focused now, but I guess we'll have to wait and see what it, what we get out of it. Right. Uh, I'm sure the Ottomans were focused as well. What? <laughs> it was 
Never mind. <laughs> I'm lost. Uh, so the next thing on here is something I linked to. It's the Cinematic Color website. It is. It's actually the course notes from one of the classes I took at SIGGRAPH. Um, and it was a really good rundown of uh, not so much video color issues, but um, film and VFX. It was really big. So there's a lot of good stuff about color science and encodings and spaces and um, linear versus log um, and just sort of whether or not we want to encode gamma um, referenced images or if we want to do scene referenced images which have like you know stops and stops of dynamic range um, and so I don't know I mean they put, he put up a really good um, there's a really good PDF on the site which is the course notes um, course was taught by this guy Jeremy from I think he's from Sony Imageworks, um, but he's the guy who created uh, Open Color IO, which is a really good. Uh, well, it's a it's a really useful uh, <laughs> command set of command line tools for doing things like LUT conversions and uh, applying LUTs to images and things like that. Um, but just lots of really neat stuff. Um, worth taking a look at. Absolutely. This is the sort of uh, deep dive stuff that, you know, if you've just gone in and used a color correction tool, for example, and sort of been feeling your way around, starting to get some of this language and understanding what's... Uh, color is just one of those topics in general that is completely perplexing and I think difficult for us to comprehend when we start thinking about... Uh, the trade-offs and ramifications and push this, pull that sort of stuff. Um, it's it's not something you master by watching a 20-minute vid- video on Linda. So. No. Yeah, no, it's it's worth looking at. Um, some of the stuff isn't going to affect you if you're on the video side, but um, it will in a couple years. Eventually, we're going to go to more linear um, scene-referred content because it makes more sense except unless you need the bits which we don't tend to need anymore so um yeah it'll be interesting cool uh let's see i'll throw this indiana jones link in the show notes um there's an interview with steven spielberg talking about the imax release (laughs) of indiana jones and the arc uh the raiders of the lost ark um but it was only interesting to me in that Spielberg gave his take on this idea of going back and sort of uh, redoing bits of movies, enhancing special effects, the sort of stuff George Lucas has been doing and that Spielberg started doing um, with E.T. and a few of his other films. And he's sort of now gone the other direction and said uh, no more of that. Um, so for the THX release of Raiders, they just sort of uh, remixed the audio for the THX style surround sound system, but did not do any sort of digital enhancement of the images or anything like that. And, um, just interesting to read Spielberg's take on it, especially in contrast to Lucas. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm, I don't know. How do you feel about that? I'm fine with someone going in and making the picture look better. Yeah. It's just, it's not the same as changing what's in the picture. Right. Exactly. You know, and, and the problem is that there's that fine line that I think Lucas walked up to initially and played with for a while and then sort of stepped past and then just went all the way past, which is, you know, with an effects heavy show movie, you know, okay, you go back and you recomposite everything. Okay. But while you're recompositing it, do you do the sort of things you do in modern compositing in terms of, you know, blending lighting and modern color correction? And, you know, well, why don't we replace this one, you know, composite layer with some CG because we can make the engines on the X-Wing look a little bit better or whatever. Um, you know, it's, I think it's easy to get sucked into using modern technology to make things look quote unquote better. Um, and the problem is, especially for those of us who have nostalgia for it, um, it's particularly problematic, but I think it also just, you know, you're never going to make Star Wars, the original Star Wars, A New Hope, feel like it wasn't shot in the seventies. And so when you sort of glom in this, you know, 21st century visuals, it, it's, there's a discontinuity there. Yeah. So... But I'm going to go see Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. In IMAX. That'll be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you got some camera stuff in here. Yeah, I have a bunch, only- bunch of camera things we can run through quickly. Um, one, and this is particularly nerdy, but um, Sony has a line of sensors, CMOS sensors, called the Exmor. Um you're probably familiar with these if you've used any of the XDCam EX cameras, but they've, they've sort of propagated across big chunks of Sony's line. Um, and it's just a particular type of, of CMOS camera that um, has, I think, is, has performed pretty well. I've always been very impressed with the imagery off of the cameras that use the Exmor um, nice low-light detail and things that have been problematic for CMOS sensors in the past. And they've now announced a version of that technology designed for cell phones. Um, and the link I'll shoot you to, which is in Japanese. Yeah, I'm um, looking at this. This is an incredibly informative it's, uh, for, a, for an English speaker. Um, and, and Gadget has a write-up too, but it wasn't particularly informative either because I don't think any of them really speak Japanese either. Um, but the idea is just to start to get more dynamic range out of cell phone imagery. Um, <clears throat> And they have some sort of A-B comparisons uh, that you can take a look at. But uh, it's it's a very minor thing, but it's interesting to see this technology that started out on cameras in the you know six to ten thousand dollar range now pushed down into a single chip implement uh, integrated into a, a cell phone um, and seemingly still looking pretty good. And they are 4K sensors, so soon we'll be shooting 4K. Oh boy. Um, Panasonic AGAC90, which is uh, not particularly interesting in any particular aspect of the camera itself, but was interesting to me because it is a uh, $2,000 some dollar camera. Uh, do you have it up? I broke my link. Okay. Your link doesn't work. No. It's because there's that thingy at the end. Your, your keyboard works, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. AGAC90 and gadget. There we go. Uh, $2,250 MSRP, so substantially less on the street probably. It is a 3CMOS professional style camera with XLR inputs and sort of um, 
everything you'd expect in a you know, modern sort of prosumer camera. And that price just, I thought was pretty impressive. It looks like a you know, nice cheap camera and it's always just shocking to me since I don't live day to day in the world of prosumer video the way I used to. Um, it's, it's just shocking what you can get for this kind of pricing now. Yeah. I mean, you know, we just keep commoditizing things more and more and, uh, that's good, I guess. Um, it'll be, I mean, is this going to drive everything? I guess it has to drive everything down over time. Well, I mean, there have always been other cameras in this sort of range, like the Sony A1U, which was an HDB camera and other things. But this one just struck me as a camera that specifically hasn't been decontented or defeatured. Um, it's just yeah. sort of a $2,000 camera that shoots every frame rate and sort of does everything. Yeah. So you think? do you think this is going to take off? Is there is there still a group of people looking for Oh, low-cost professional cameras, or is everyone looking for low-cost movie cameras now? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, if uh, you know anyone in ENG and broadcast and documentary and just sort of all the industrial church, all the people who just need to acquire content and want a camera that's set up to sort of help you acquire pretty good-looking content without being fidgety and without being your full-time gig and without needing, you know, rails and extra equipment. I think stuff like this still makes a ton of sense. And oh, I agree. It definitely makes sense. I just wonder if there's the... I don't know if that market base has gotten split up enough now. I, you know, I'm not sure. Um, I, I think it'll probably do pretty well. Um, this is going to be a great camera for shooting web content, for example, especially with both yeah. 60, 60p and 30p modes. Um, you know you'll be able to put together a really nice rig with some lights and a couple nice mics and a tripod for, you know, well under $4,000, um, probably under 3,500 or even under three. That's true. So that's not a bad little rig to go shoot your, you know, intro video for Kickstarter or your two, your little tutorial videos or whatever. And right. So what's the, um, what are outputs on this? Um, I don't actually, let me see if the actual press release says, I would assume it's HDMI, but not HDSDI. Yeah. HDMI output, USB 2. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. It'll become a little, we're going to see a lot of these at shows with, um, Teradex attached to them. Right. And, or, I mean, yeah, a lot of good options. Um, the, that sort of flows into though, this other piece I picked up on, which was a Philip Bloom piece on shooting a video with the Canon 1DX, which is a, it's sort of a specialized DSLR, uh, the Canon one, one line or one D line has always, um, been sort of specialized for, um, people with pro- lots of money. Yeah. Professional shooter, professional photographers, um, who need, you know, super high ISO and super high throughput and, um, you know, the ability to take two batteries or, you know, a variety of other things. I don't know. Um, but, and, and, you know, Philip was really impressed by it and was surprised how much better it was than the 5d for shooting video. But I thought the interesting part of this, and it was a throwaway line from Philip was, um, the very first line of the piece, which is there are a lot of people who say that DSLRs for pro video work is dead. And this was the first time that I'd been forced to sort of think about that because, you know, it was only a few years ago that 
pro, you know, DSLRs for pro video was even an option, you know, with the first 5D and then the 7D and the 5D Mark II and all of that, um, that suddenly people started saying, hey, you can shoot actual video with these DSLRs and actually it looks really well, good. It looks really depth of fieldy. Um, but so quickly, the camera manufacturers saw that and went back and, you know, revamped lines. And we got things like the C300 and the FS100 and FS700 and F3 and, you know, all these great cameras and the Blackmagic digital cinema camera and everything else. And so now you've got people like Philip just sort of saying as, you know, common knowledge that you don't shoot with DSLRs anymore. What do you think about that? Do you think, I mean, you know, do you think there's... Do you think that the blip of DSLR videography is just that, just a blip, or do you think there is a place for it? Um, I mean, I think I think the there is going to be a very short blip in the history of video where people buy still cameras to shoot video instead of buying video cameras to shoot video. And I mean, there's there's you know, I think there's going to be probably more video shot on DSLRs every year from now going forward. But it's going to be people who bought the camera principally for photography. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's no... If you can get a good video camera for the same price, and, you know, I don't, I don't really see why you would want to shoot on a DSLR given everything else being equal. And we're getting to the point now where things are starting to get equal across product lines. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can, if, if you want a big sensor, so you get the shallow depth of field, you can get that now. Um, if you want, you know, the portability and, or the cost or whatever, you can get that. I mean, it's all about, I don't see there being a lot of people who are going to make this set of trade-offs going forward. Sure. You know, who are like, who are, you know, wake up in the morning, go to bnh.com and say, I'm going to be, you know, making my living in the next few years shooting weddings. Like, I should get a DSLR. You know, unless they're saying, I'm going to make my living shooting photos and video of weddings. Yeah. But like, you know, people who are videographers who want to shoot a movie, I don't, you know, I don't see a huge reason to choose this over something else. Um, that said, I think, you know, the video is getting so good on these that more people are just going to shoot more video. Sure. Do you Ooh. think, that, you know, we've joked and, and talked a bit in the past about the, the particulars of the DSLR look. Do you think there is any sort of wider <clears throat> reaction to that that would push people into more traditional cameras? Um, you know, not so much cameras that can't get that look, but cameras that at least give you the option of not having that look? I don't... I mean, are there a lot of people who don't like that look? I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. I, I mean, mean... And, I, you know, I've got to admit, like, I... Because I just bought this T... Whatever I bought, T3i. Mm-hmm. Um, and both with that and with your T2i a couple of months ago or a month ago, I, I've, you know, switched it into video mode maybe once and then sort of said, no, nah, I don't... This, <laughs> I just want to take stills. I, I, I guess I don't, you know, as a hobbyist, I don't know what I would do with that content because I feel like, in particular, the DSLR video look really only works if you're willing to take the time to sort of edit together a bunch of close-ups and rack focuses with some indie music and then put it on Vimeo. 
I, I don't know why you're so elitist in your ivory tower made out of sharp focused things <laughs> okay well speaking I mean, of uh, like, uh, you know I, just, I mean if you're what, what can't you shoot on DSR that you can shoot on something else I mean other than run and gun yeah I don't, I don't know I just don't think it lends itself to a lot of I don't know you can open the uh, aperture and uh, then you can buy really fast or really slow lenses cheap it's true so <clears throat> speaking of um, you know shallow depth of field close shots with indie music uh, making of the Leica M9P quick video we'll link to on Vimeo which again not normally a total sucker for these but this one was fascinating um, it's a special package from Leica with uh, Hermes doing a custom bag for it and then a camera built by Leica uh, I have no idea what it costs I imagine quite a bit uh, but it's a nice little documentary about the making of both the uh, bag and the packaging and the camera and uh, it's very beautiful and shows a lot of real sort of old worldy craftsmanship of leather and you know paper and glue and um, you know it sucked me and I watched it and I was impressed Oh, I haven't watched it. The camera is made out of leather and paper and glue? No, no, no. The camera is normal, like uh, the bag, and then they actually make the box and everything. Uh, oh, wow. It's all it's handmade. Like... Uh. So. Okay, I'll watch it later. Yeah, it's... it's Most cool. of the links you send me, I just sort of ignore, but... I assume. <laughs> I'll take a look later, I guess. All right. Um, do you know what OS Med is? No. Do I have to? I well, no one does. You should drive down there and ask. Knock on the door. OS Meta is a what we would call, if we were living in the Bay Area, uh, a stealth startup or a startup in stealth mode. Um, and it only caught my attention because the president and CEO and visionary behind it is Amit Singh, who some of you will know as the guy who wrote the Mac OS X internals book. Um, he's actually done a lot of things. His resume stretches way back, and he's been involved in some of, some of the sort of fundamental design of modern networking and worked in cloud computing and a variety of other spaces. It seems like OS Meta likely is a cloud-related startup just based on who's there working. But uh, it is, they're not saying much about what they're doing. And, um, it, you know, it may be nothing. It may be something awesome. I laughed when I saw that they have a quote from um, Dan Dauberpool, who is now at PA Semi, or was it? I guess PA Semi is owned by Apple now. But yeah. uh, anyways, he says, I've seen OS Meta's technology and what this team has accomplished is mind blowing. I have no doubt that it will have great impact on the industry. And all I could think of was uh, the quotes around Segway before Segway launched, which was like Steve Jobs saying that it will change the way we build cities and some of this other stuff. Um, you know. Change the way we tour cities <laughs> when on vacation. Yes, that's sort of. Where, oh, I was looking at places to go over Labor Day with the missus, and uh, 
I don't remember what small California town I was looking at on Google Maps. And the only thing that showed up in like the you know, the highlights for the thing was a Segway tour company. Nice. And it was like, huh. Wonder what they're touring. They're touring the rest of the things that Google didn't label. <laughs> I'm a sucker for the segue. But yeah, anyways, uh, OS Meta, who knows when or if we will ever find out what they're working on. Um, but they've definitely got a lot of big names behind it, uh, big names in terms of smart people, the guys who worked on Hadoop and a number of other sort of bits of modern cloud and distributed computing infrastructure that power Web 2.0 and, and the modern Internet um, are all hanging out together in a building in the Bay Area. So... So I don't. Do you want to hit? So there's two big common. I don't know bloviations in this city, and one is that it doesn't matter what your idea is. It's the team, and whatnot. And then there's all these people who do these, you know stealth startups who think that they need to keep the idea caged like is there really like another i mean i don't know i mean what is their idea in like what could it be that we can't come up with it ourselves yeah like i would assume they're gonna succeed or fail because they have you know good technology and good people. The people. It. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I would say, and I don't remember how OS Meta got on my radar in the last week or two. Um, probably just saw a random tweet or something. I, I would say for them, it may be just more about staying out of the public eye because they're not trying to do the, the stuff Red did, which is we're totally a secret, but ooh, how exciting that we're a secret. Um, you know, they're not out there pushing what is OS meta and all of that. They're just sort of dudes who show up and work every day. And so I think it's probably more about just having that attitude like, you know, Apple or someone else of we'll announce it when it's ready and we'll decide when it's ready. And we don't want either pressure or just sort of the distraction of having to deal with all of the stuff you do if you pre-announce a product. Yeah. But then you don't have to put up an about page, which says, we are working on really, really interesting software technology. It is big and bold. Well, I guess my only <laughs> counter to that would be that the you know that page is there for recruiting, and it's not targeted at people coming in off the internet. It's targeting at people who might sort of see in that list skill sets that they have who they might might be interested in getting in touch. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. I mean, they're not looking for funding. And they're not seemingly trying to build any sort of social media buzz or any of that. Like, they're not positioning themselves as that kind of company, it doesn't seem. so. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I I've know. just never understood those either of the impulses, really. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. Um, it's always intriguing, though, when you see smart people getting together like that. Most of the time, the product is underwhelming. Um, you know, I'm reminded of, like... Uh, Transmeta. Yeah, Transmeta was the one I was thinking of. Uh, you know, you get Linus and a bunch of other smart people together, and they build a sort of subpar processor that is quickly outpaced by Moore's Law. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. Uh, very quickly, just throw in a couple more links to a 
sort of random list that Phil Bloom also wrote on what to do if you want to succeed in video. Um, nothing on here will be shocking, but it's always nice to hear someone else say the things that we all think, like you don't need a RED, an Alexa, or a C300. You just need to be good at shooting. Um, you know, hmm. lots of other bits of advice for people looking at getting into this world. Um, this is not the sort of, this, uh, anyways, take a look if you're interested in being a shooter. Um, it can't hurt. Meow. Yeah. Um, the last thing on my list was um, a piece that just went up recently from FX Guide looking at the hair modeling in Brave. Have you seen Brave? Yes. Did you like it? Yes. I have not seen it yet. You should see it. It's good. Um, it looks good. I, I It wasn't really on my radar at all for the same reason that I gather it wasn't on a lot of people's is that we just sort of assumed it was a traditional princess fairy tale and I just was listening to... Um, the incomparable podcast about the the movie, and it made it clear that that is that is not the case. And so now I'm more inclined well, to see it. I mean, it, it's enough of one, but it doesn't matter. It's got it's got any music. <laughs> I don't um, make anybody cry. The FX Guide piece is really just targeted at how they modeled and animated the hair on the lead character. Um, I forget what her name is, but the Princess Meredith. Um, She's got a lot of curly hair, and it's always cool to just learn about the types of tools they build to make stuff like that look right. Um, and both the sorts of you know, the amount of work that the animators have to do, and then the amount of work that the systems behind the scenes have to do to make that work is pretty mind blowing. I uh, misread there was a sentence in here that says uh, Marita's, Marita's hair was simulated at about 20 to 30 seconds of frame. I read that backwards. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. They can watch it in real time. And then, oh, yeah, no. wait, no. Yeah. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's well done. You should see it. Yeah, I'll have to. You know, they do a lot of, um, they're getting good at this stuff. Yeah. And it's, I mean, um. The, this the, this is actually a really nice piece. FX Guide always does really nice things, and they've also linked to some interviews that were conducted by other sources with some Pixar animators um, that just really remind you of what a great company Pixar is. <laughs> and how yeah, much no, they did. They had, uh, you know, one of the things at SIGGRAPH is everybody talks about the pipelines they had to develop for all the movies that came out this last year. And so there was a whole thing about hair in all the various movies. And then there was another session on clothing and the cloth simulations they use in these and crowd simulations. So, yeah, they, it's crazy how much work they have to do for each one of these movies just at the, like, tool level. Right. Like, you never really get to sit back and use the tool chain you built for the last movie. And just also, I guess, how much work goes into getting everything in place so that you can start shooting the movie, for lack of a better word. You can start, like, building individual scenes and animating them with dialogue and everything is, you know, just building all of these characters and all of the clothing for the characters and then, you know, rigging and just, it's, you know, no wonder it takes however many years per Pixar film. I don't know what their cycle is at now. Three, it's like four. Yeah. Three or four, yeah. Um 
it's just it's really impressive and i you know i'm in awe of the people who have the patience and the ability to stick with those things and just slug away at it because there is a lot of you know for all of the great tool chains and everything there's just a lot of hard work yeah and it seems like the stories always stay one step ahead of the tools. So there's, there's, I don't think there are a lot of movies where you get to like make changes as an animator and see them immediately, (laughs) (laughs) which is something I really like in my tools. I think that would drive me a little batty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, in particular with Pixar and I know that, you know, there's there's a tendency for people in our community to hold Pixar above some of the other 3D animation companies, I think. But um, in particular, just the subtlety, the the subtle things that they worry about in terms of making characters either seem natural or seem alive, I think. Um, and some of that came across in some of these interviews is just really impressive. The difference between sort of uh, making Saturday morning cartoons and making a Pixar movie in, in that level of concern with you know, how people are conveyed on screen. Yeah, it's a good movie. You should go see it. Yeah. There's a lot of good stuff. Samsara's coming out. Got Raiders in IMAX. Got this. I'm going to see um, The Master tonight. So tell me again what this is. So P.T. Anderson, the guy who did Punch Drunk Love, mm-hmm. which is an acquired taste. Some people like that movie, some people don't. I like P.T. Anderson. Um but he's doing a movie which, as far as I understand it, is won't say that it's a takedown of Scientology, but is a takedown of Scientology. Um, it's about, I don't think it's about Elron Hubbard, it's about the other guy. Apparently there were two guys. I'm not entirely sure, but it's... I don't know. It's supposed to be good. But it's a limited release sort of thing? Um, I think it's going to be a real release soon, uh, but this is at the Castro and it's a, and it's an event. I don't know. I think it. I don't know if it's out yet. Let me let me type on my loud keyboard here for a second. But it's got Philip Seymour Hoffman, nice. which you gotta love, and Joaquin Phoenix and other people. When did it come out? Um, it's not showing up in like the automatic Google thing. Huh. So I'm guessing it's not out yet. Well, I'll throw in uh, Radar, Raiders is doing a one-week IMAX showing from September 7th to September 13th. So if you want to see it, uh, make sure you get your tickets. And then... Uh, Sam Sarah, which maybe we can talk about on the next podcast, is uh, opening September 11th in wider release, I think, or I don't know, it's coming soon in a wider release as well, so I will be seeing that one in the theater. Yeah, I guess. I mean, Baraka was good. Yeah. I don't know. I don't... I haven't had to sit through one of those movies since I graduated from college and didn't have a drug dealer anymore. <laughs> it would be interesting. I don't know if uh, Simso is going to be shown in 4K digital anywhere, but that would be an interesting opportunity. I'm sure it will be. Yeah, I've got to imagine. So, 
Did uh, you ever watch that Timescapes? Yeah. You did? Yeah. Oh, okay. Is that, did you buy the 4K? No. No. And watch the upper two-thirds of it on your monitor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I don't. When I get my Retina 27. Oh, no, you could watch it on your MacBook Pro, right? No, that's not Retina. Or not 4K. No? No. I guess because you can't actually display it. It's only, well, no, it's only 29 whatever by... Yeah. Okay. Someday. Lame. Uh, you want to do chatter? Yeah, so um, my link is to a TED Talk um, about femtophotography. It's... Um, Basically, it's a guy from MIT, yeah, who is now has a camera that can shoot a trillionth of a second, something like that. Yeah. Um, frame rate. And so it's actually, if you light a scene, the shutter on it is fast enough such that it will capture the light moving from one side of the frame to the other so you can shoot a tiny burst of laser light and watch it you know almost like the old you know the high speed photography of bullets hitting apples and stuff you can do that now with light and see how it kind of moves around and uh yeah it's just what's interesting is that that allows you to do all sorts of weird stuff with you know, 3D time of flight calculations. So you can start doing things like seeing around corners and building 3D representations of things you can't see. Um, I don't know. It'll be interesting. It's, uh, yeah. it's mean, crazy. And and the look, you know, because I, I watched it and initially I, I wasn't that impressed because we've seen things like this before using some of the materials that have been de- developed that actually slow down light where they've been able to capture this by slowing light down to only sort of, you know, 10,000 miles a second or whatever, you know. Uh, I've seen this. Yeah, and, and so that look of seeing the leading edge, for lack of a better word, of sort of a, a beam of light or, a, you know, a, a pulse of laser light didn't sort of surprise me. But then when I started thinking, like, oh, this is actually just in, in this case, like in a soda bottle that was set on a table and it's all the magic for the camera, is pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still, and so I need to watch it again because there's this little off-the-cuff moment in the thing where they talk about it's some sort of um, issue with relativity and the speed of light. Did you did you understand that? No, I didn't understand it. They're basically the waves can actually the camera can image the objects backwards because of the. I didn't, I didn't get it exactly. <laughs> it's one of those spaces where lots of weird stuff starts happening. Yeah. Right at the edge of, yeah. Yeah, because what happens is because it's moving at the speed of light, time doesn't work the same anymore, Is was my impression. But I didn't really understand. There's one little off-the-cuff remark in here maybe that just I need a, to follow and just sit down. Maybe there's just a bug in his frame reorder, and he was attributing it to... Uh, quantum mechanics or something no like the reflection is pointed the wrong direction whoa take a look at it. there's like a 
circular spot that should be facing the other direction. Well, so what's your my take on it? I thought that um, I wasn't sure whether this was actually the video he shows was actually sort of the raw output or if it was a composite of lots. Yeah, my understanding is they do it a ton of times. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but but so also, you, I'm wondering if they're compositing some of the bottle and other things, like just based on exposure levels. No, I think I think what you see is a video, but it's just like an additive sampling of a thousand. So you sync the camera to the laser pulse, right? And then you run the you just run it in repeat. Right, and adjust 300 times. Yeah, you slip and the then, sink a little bit each time. Um, so that you're capturing a slightly later moment versus... No, no, later. I think you run it in real time, but you just don't capture enough photons oh. to get a, a video that looks as nice as this. Like, you just... There's no way you could capture color like right, that. Right. And so what you do is you, you count up the 16 photons you got, put those in a movie file, and then run the whole operation again and add the next set of photon counts. That was my understanding. Okay. Maybe you might be right. You might image one frame at a time, but I think you actually image. Image the whole event. Right. With not enough light and then do it again and then do it again and then do it again. So you build up your, I mean, the, the reason why it's really hard to capture this is mostly because you're capturing shutters. <laughs> shutters need to stay open longer in order to get enough light. Right to hit um and so what they do instead is run the op they film the exact same thing a bunch of times and combine so instead of sampling the ccd once after it's collected photons for a 30th of a second they run the operation thirty thousand times and each time they leave the shutter open for you know, one ten thousandth of a second and then add them all together. Except we're talking about trillions of a second. Right, yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> Light is really fast. Yeah. Wow, it's cool research. Um do you know is this coming out of the same lab that was doing the imaging around corners stuff? It, yeah, it's the same guy. Okay, that's what I thought. It's actually in the video he shows the three D reconstruction. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. That's right. But yeah, that's where you, that's where things get really crazy because they've been able to do this. I mean, this is how laser range finders work. Like they used for self-driving cars and for mapping things for, you know, the 3d Google maps and stuff. The way all that LIDAR works is you send out a laser with a frequency. And when it returns, you, what you're able to do is run that frequency against the frequency that you measure on the return, and you're able to get very fine-grained differences based on sort of the, you know, if you play, it's like if you and a person do just about the same frequency, like sing, just hum, just about the same frequency, you get that pulsing. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, they're actually using that to do really sensitive time calculations but this is doing the same thing by just actually pulsing the light right. <laughs> you know just actually measuring for such a short period of time that you can keep track of when each photon came back sure 
Very which cool. gets crazy. Yeah. Um, my chatter this week is an article from ACMQ um, by Poole Henning Comp. And it's a look back on the Cathedral and the Bazaar by Eric Raymond and a sort of um, critique of the open source movement and I think more broadly just the Unix community in general. Um, you know, we're a pretty good distance on now from the rise of open source and the rise of Linux in the late 90s. And just sort of looking back at what the, you know, what the downsides are. Obviously, there's lots of upsides in terms of powering innovation and powering the web and, and all kinds of modern technology. But looking back at what the open source culture sort of where, where things fall down, in particular as it relates to things like uh, willingness to go back and reevaluate bad decisions from the past and make changes that are not sexy or new, but actually. Um, make life easier for everyone. And, and because open source is built on this idea that you build on the work of others, there's very little incentive to go back and fix the work of others or, you know, Well, and the problem is the if, you, if you go back, you can tweak the work of, you can go back and tweak the foundational stuff. But if, because everything's built in these giant strata, if you go back, you can't, it's hard to go back and make some sort of revolutionary change to the underpinnings because then everybody else's work for the last 20 years that's based off of it all crumbles too. And then you basically. Right. And so we just, and and what happens is because it it just builds and builds and builds, you end up with, you know, these, everything's interrelated and no, and it becomes not unstable in the unstable software sense, but just in that sort of uh, Jenga tower sense that, you don't want to touch any bit because the ramifications are so dramatic. And so we have these systems, for example, the, the automake system, which was a bad decision in the eighties. It's an even worse decision now, but you can't, no one wants to change it. And also I think there's no incentive to put the effort into changing it. Well, I mean, so yeah, I, I thought there he missed one of the, he missed a finer point on this because people have, I mean, no one likes make, and there are six new versions. I mean, everyone has a new, better version of Make. Um, you know, there's CMake and there's... Well, sure. And, like, LLVM is making their own one based off Perl. Like, everyone's reinvented this wheel. The problem is there's so much... You know, when you try to fix something like this and there's no... You know, the problem with open source is that it's outside of the market. And so if you make something that's marginally better, there's no, it's not necessarily going to win. I mean, this isn't the, you know, this is the common critique of communism <laughs> is that there's very little incentive to do things better. And so, you know, lots of people have made really great build systems or make systems, but they never take over, you know. I mean, people fix their own problems on their own silo. And they don't get adopted by the community as a whole because there's still, you know, that giant, you know, it's just hard to go back and revolutionize. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, and it's not, not specific to this article, but it, it, um, you know, just in general, the open source community, I think suffers this stagnation from the lack of um, drive from, you know, 
not necessarily even from a profit motive, but um, just from having people who have the authority to tell everyone to make it better. Um, and so, you know, the sort of cycles you see from Apple or Microsoft, but also what you're seeing like Google doing with Android, which is an open source product based on Linux, but, you know, Google, well, at, at through some series of relations, Google somehow has an incentive to make Android better, I guess, um, or regardless, they, they are, um, and really, you know, pushing to polish and to year over year improve the product. Whereas yeah, but I mean, Linux just gets broader year over year. But that I, I'm not sure that that, I mean, I've never heard anyone talk right about Google's tool chain for Android. No, that's true. And that's what I'm saying is I think that it's happening I mean, at a different level. Right. I mean, in Linux, you know, there are nice polished versions of Linux. I mean, people, there are set-top boxes that people like using on their TVs. Yeah. You know, but that's not the same as the, you know, that's just lipstick on pegs. Right. Well, I mean, and, and on the toolchain side, you know, who who else is you know LVM I guess is the the big name driving change there. On toolchain, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, like the problem is that I don't know. I mean, I mean when I'm talking, you know, when I was making the comments on, about Make, I don't mean like Xcode. Right. I mean like the people who. Like, they don't, you know, they're in the process of trying to replace, make, to build LLVM right. on Linux. Like, <laughs> you know, they just they just don't want to manage the config files anymore. And, you know, most uh, most large open source projects, I bet if you look at WebKit, they've done the same thing. Like, right. the problem is, you know, and I mean, it's understandable, like, you know, Let's say tomorrow you and I decide that we're going to quit making these apps and we're going to start a new project. Like, what are we going to spend the first week doing? You know, auditing the 40,000 make systems out there to decide which one we should start building off of? Or are we going to, you know, open up a text editor and start writing what we want to work on? Right. You know, and the problem, you know, I don't know how you become the scrappy insurgent when... One, There's I think, one that's installed on everybody's system. Right. One, I just, I think that's the problem where without something like, you know, an, an, enti an entity like Apple or, or Microsoft or someone who can say, you know, I, I don't know. I don't even know if it's that. I mean, I think the problem is that there are solutions now that are good enough until later. Right, well, I guess that's and the point of this article. And everybody ends up fixing it later. The, the point of this article is, like, the configure script checks for the existence of, you know, standard library, which, you know, no modern computer could exist without and, you know, could even be running any of this stuff. But the, the config script is still checking for it because they're within the community and within this wider ecosystem of open source, there's no incentive for anyone to go back and remove that one line of code. Well, I mean, there is an incentive and eventually individual teams do it because they're, you know, because their project gets large enough that it takes, you know, 15 minutes to compile and then they go back and optimize this stuff, but it never makes it back into the, yeah, I suppose 
I mean, it's the 80-20 problem all over again. I don't, I'm not sure if it is a problem, you know? I mean, it's arcane and it's horrible. The, I mean, the thing, the thing in this article that I thought was more telling, you know, was more interesting was that these tools are just a pain in the ass to use. Right. You know, I mean, that seems like a better thing to fix than that they're inefficient or that they're based on Croft or whatever. Like, it doesn't matter underneath how horrible they are, really. I mean, they're they're used by enough people that they can be a bear to maintain because everyone needs them to keep running. Right. But the big problem is that, you know, because no one really understands how to build a make file, everyone just makes them by copy. Everyone makes them, yeah, makes a naive make file. Right. I don't know. But, I mean, you know, that's obviated by the fact that, you know, if you're if you're living in the present, you can use an IDE. Yeah. As long as you're not running from Vim. Well, it, it was, it, you know, it's an interesting piece because it's, I think, I think it's a pretty balanced piece. It's not a sort of anti-open source piece. It's just a, someone who's been involved in the trenches taking a look back at you know no it was a good read yeah and there was i didn't i mean it's there's some good uh there's been some good discussion about it since on twitter and other places yeah and actually also the comment thread um and i haven't even, i didn't even look what you know they must be moderating these because the comment thread is actually um a pretty compelling conversation that the author is heavily involved with yeah so all right, well, we'll talk to you next week, I guess. Yeah. Good times. Okay. Go see Brave. Um, I'm at work right now. Yeah, yeah. Go see Brave this weekend. Tonight. I'll, I'll, I'll take a look at the show times and see what might work. It's going to be... Okay. Uh, I don't want to see it on film, though. I wonder if we have any good digital theaters. I haven't been to a movie theater in a long time. What's your problem with film? Well, it just at this point, like, the movie's been out so long, the film's going to be all scratchy and gross. Oh, boy. That's supposed to make it better, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That's what Instagram told me. Yeah, pretty much. I'll just have to watch it through that de-Instagram app. Do they make that? Someone awesome. just released it. It's called Normalize. It takes Instagram filters and removes the filter. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's easy enough to do, right? Why is that not your chatter? That is way better. Come on. We're going to have to do another one of these next week. All right. I'll make a note. Bye. Later.